This is Germ Warfare, the battle of ideas. Brian, what is your background? Uh, I'm a former U.S. Marine. Uh, I was an electro-optical ordnance repairman, which means I, I worked on all the different uh, uh, electrical and optical weapon systems, including fire control, tow missile, javelin, night vision, all, all kinds of things like that. When I got out of the Marine Corps, I left the United States because I was against the U.S. invasion of Iraq. I went to Thailand. This was one of the places that I had been while in the Marines as part of uh, a training deployment. And I've, I've been living here and in, in Asia in general almost my entire adult life. I was doing industrial design before I got sucked into geopolitical analysis. And it's simply because I just, I watch the news. I know I'm being lied to. I see many people being sucked into the, the traps that they create and I, I cannot tolerate it. So I, I started to speak up through articles and now videos. Is there a Uyghur genocide happening in China? Uh, absolutely not. And if you read the Western media carefully, even they will admit there is no actual genocide. A genocide means they're rounding people up and they're trying to exterminate an entire ethnic group. And that is not happening in China with the Uyghurs or any other group in China for that matter. And because they, they could not find evidence, because there was none, they've kind of downgraded and backpedaled away from just simply genocide. Now they're claiming that it's cultural genocide. Okay, they're not wiping them out physically, but they're wiping out their, their culture, which is also not true. There, there, there actually was a very real cultural genocide taking place in China. It was not by the Chinese government, it was by the United States and their Saudi uh, and Turkish allies. They were radicalizing the Uyghurs in Western China, the Xinjiang region, and they were overriding their traditional centuries-long traditions of, of Islam, their interpretation of Islam. They were overriding it with Salafism imported from Saudi Arabia. And for people that don't know what Salafism is, it is a perversion of Islam solely for political and military purposes to radicalize a targeted group and then use them as, as proxies. We've seen the U.S. do this in Afghanistan in the 1980s against the Soviet Union and more recently in Libya and Syria. To, to overthrow the Libyan government and an attempt to overthrow the Syrian government. So it's the same exact process in Xinjiang, in Western China, using radicalized Uyghurs. Who are the Uyghurs? The, the Uyghurs are a, a Turkish ethnic group. They, they have their own language, their own script. And, and like I said, their own interpretation of Islam, it's a very moderate interpretation. The region is famous for uh, producing wine, uh, which would take a lot of people by surprise because generally in Islam, you're not allowed to consume alcohol. There's a lot of secular Uyghurs who drink alcohol, actually drink alcohol. They have a, a long history within China as, as a kingdom, dynasty, nation, all throughout history for centuries and centuries. And uh, if you look through attempts to claim that this is a totally separate region that China just colonized or annexed recently, they will admit that the last time it, there was any sort of truly independent uh, region for the Uyghurs was back in the 1700s. And then, and then they'll point to around World War II, before and after World War II, there were different iterations of 
what they call East Turkestan, and uh, these iterations didn't last for even a year, uh, or a year, or not even a year for one of them, and like just two or three years. And uh, that's complicated because at that time, China was literally occupied by Western powers, European and U.S. colonial powers. And there was that moment of weakness where these, these sections tried to break away. And then once the, the Westerners were pushed out, they consolidated their sovereignty and their territorial integrity, which includes Xinjiang, this region where the Uyghurs are. Which is, I believe, in the west of China. Is that right? Yes, the west. So if you, you look at a map, it's uh, in the western region. It actually borders Afghanistan um, and uh, all of those those Central Asian stands you, you will see on the map. And uh, they share a lot in common, obviously, but they also share a lot in common with uh, the rest of China as well. How many Uyghurs are there? If there were a genocide, you would you would suspect that the population would be decreasing. Yeah, actually, actually the population has increased. The population has increased, and this is because uh, the Chinese government had a one-China policy uh, across most of China, but there were ethnic groups that were excluded, including the Uyghurs. So they, they had always been able to have more than one child, and they their population has actually grown. So no, there, there, is, no, there is no genocide. They make up um, not you know, they're the largest ethnic group in Xinjiang still, even right now. They make up, uh, I think, about 45% of the population. The next largest ethnic group would be Han Chinese at 40, 40%. So it was a very ill-conceived and poorly executed genocide if their goal a was to A terrible genocide. Worst genocide them. ever. Yes. <laughs> Worst <laughs> genocide ever. Absolutely. Yeah, the population increases. <laughs> yes. And, and they're still the largest ethnic group in the region. Imagine that. How many did you say? About? They're 40, 45%, and then the next largest group is Han Chinese at 40%, uh, which makes sense because there's a, you know, the majority of people in China are Han Chinese, and you will find them everywhere. So, so that's in the millions yeah. in terms of... Yeah, mil yeah, millions. Yeah, millions. Yeah. And, the, and again, even the Western media, if you look at their claims, they, they try to give you the impression that they're exterminating the Uyghurs, but when you actually comb through the article, they never mention mass killings or mass graves or anything like that. There, there is no evidence of that. They don't even actually try to convince you of that. They, tr they try to imply it and let you draw that conclusion, but they never actually even make that accusation. Satellite imagery, you would find something, but there's nothing. But they have this um, organization, ASPE, Australian um, Strategic, uh, hold on a second, let me find what it actually means. It's the uh, Australian Strategic Policy Institute, ASPE, and it's funded by the Australian, British, US government, and also all the arms manufacturers. So you, you could already start to see the picture that's coming together here. They, they want to create a threat. They want to sell weapons and make money. They also want to expand hegemony around the globe. And uh, they actually had one of their experts claiming to be some sort of uh, satellite image imagery guru. And he was saying, this is, this is a prison camp. That is a prison camp. Some of them turned out to be like ch ch chicken chicken farms or factories or, or things like this. And, they, and you know, the criteria for making it a prison camp is, oh, well, there's, there's barbed wire around the perimeter. If you travel through Asia, there's barbed wire around a lot of places because uh, even in safe places, for whatever reason, they just 
they feel safer from petty thievery if they've got some barbed wire around the place or a wall or something. So where does this genocide narrative uh, stem from? It's a, it's a good question. And the, I think the answer is, will be very interesting to a lot of people. The United States government deliberately, again, with, with Saudi Arabia primarily, they invested heavily in radicalizing uh, certain groups of Uyghurs in Xinjiang and encouraging separatism, this idea of carving off a new East Turkestan from China. And nobody disputes that Xinjiang is part of China. Under international law, that is part of China. But the US was encouraging separatism and extremism. And for many years, actually, there was horrific, horrific terrorism. And this is terrorism you're not going to hear about from the Western media today. They'll never mention it or they'll try to downplay it. But I've got an older BBC article here. And when I say older, I mean from 2014. It's titled, Why is there tension between China and the Uyghurs? And I'm not going to read the whole thing, but I do want to read the, the, the list of terrorist attacks and, and atrocities that these extremists the U.S. was backing were carrying out. So it says, China has been accused of intensifying its crackdown on the Uyghurs after street protests in the 1990s and again in the run-up to the Beijing Olympics in 2008. And this is because, again, the U.S., when remember Russia was hosting the Olympics, they tried to do everything in their power to disrupt it. So that's what that was. And then the article continues. It says, but things really escalated in 2009 with large-scale ethnic rioting in the regional cap capital, Urmqi. Some 200 people were killed in the unrest, most of them Han Chinese, according to officials. In June 2012, six Uyghurs reportedly tried to hijack a plane from Houghton to Urmqi before they were overpowered by passengers and crew. So kind of like a 9-11 a sort of scenario there. At least 31 people were killed and more than 90 suffered injuries in May 2014 when two cars crashed through an Urmqi market and explosives were tossed into the crowd. China called it, and BBC puts this in quotation marks, a violent terrorist incident. What, what is it if it's not a violent terrorist incident? This is what the BBC does. And these are the little clues that you can see that indicate that the West is behind this and the Western media is trying to spin everything. It continues, it's a very long list. It followed a bomb and knife attack at Urmqi South Railway Station in April, 2014, which killed three and injured 79 others. In July, authorities said a knife-wielding gang attacked the police station and government offices in uh, Yarnkant, leaving 96 dead. Uh, the Inman of China's largest mosque, Jume Tahir was stabbed to death days later. So the largest mosque exists in uh, Xinjiang. And, you know, if the government wanted to eradicate them, why would that mosque even exist? In September, about 50 died in blasts in Luntai County outside police stations, a market, and a shop. Details of both incidents are unclear. And activists have contested some accounts of incidents in state media. I will get to who these activists are in just a moment. Uh, some violence has also spilled out of Xinjiang. A March stabbing spree in Kuoming in Yunnan province that killed 29 people was blamed on Xinjiang separatists, as was an October 2013 incident where a car plowed into a crowd and burst into flames in Beijing's Tiananmen Square. In response to the latest slew of attacks, the authorities have launched what they call a year-long campaign against terrorism, stepping up security in Xinjiang and conducting more military drills in the region. There have also been reports of mass sentencing and arrests of several terror groups. Again, BBC puts them in quotation marks as if they're not terrorists, the people doing this. 
Chinese state media have reported long lists of people convicted of extremist activity, and in some cases, death sentences. So back then, the BBC and the rest of the Western media were more than happy to uh, create these long lists of, of horrific terrorism, because at that time, they didn't think China would be able to control it. They thought it would keep getting bigger and bigger, and they wanted to portray China as out of control. But you know what happened? China got control back. They inst instituted all of these security measures. They were, instead of waging a war on terror the way the U.S. did, invading countries, um, actually killing a million people, uh, displacing tens of millions more. What they did was they found these extremists, they rehabilitated them, they reintroduced them to society, they gave them jobs. Uh, and now you can go to Xinjiang, it's a very safe place. As, as a matter of fact, in China, it's a very popular tourist destination. So uh, that's where this all comes from. The, the idea of some sort of genocide taking place is actually China's reaction to US-sponsored terrorism in Xinjiang using these extremists uh, that, that were radicalized with the help of Saudi Arabia. Um, I have other articles from say LA Times also around the same time, 2016, where they talk about Salafism infecting Muslim communities and how it divided the Muslim communities, not, not Muslims against uh, secular Chinese, but it was dividing Muslims among themselves because China has its own unique type of Islam and the Salafism that the US and Saudi Arabia were uh, infecting Xinjiang with, this was creating huge problems. Because these people would, would say, you know, if you're drinking alcohol, we'll, we'll chop your ear off or we'll cut your head off. And th this, was, this was part of the violence that racked Xinjiang. So China's reaction to this is being labeled by the West as some sort of genocide. Uh, reacting to this, putting very dangerous extremists uh, uh, into prison or trying to rehabilitate them, this is what they're claiming is justice. So that's the root of this lie that there's some sort of genocide taking place. You'd also think that if there were a genocide, those people would be trying to escape. Yes, <laughs> yeah, you, would, you would think so. The only people that you see escaping are separatists and they're very small in number compared to the entire Uyghur population. Most Uyghurs want nothing to do with this. As a matter of fact, a lot of the victims were actually Uyghur, Uyghur Muslims. Uh, the people escaping are the separatists and these so-called activists that, that they were just talking about in the BBC article. And these activists right now, if you wanna find them, they're in Washington DC and they've got their organizations funded by the US government through the National Endowment for Democracy and they, masquerade as human rights organizations, but in reality, uh, they're separatists. If you go to their website, say uh, the World's Uyghur Congress, um, let me see if I can find that one. World Uyghur Congress on their website, it says the World Uyghur Congress declares a nonviolent and peaceful opposition movement against Chinese occupation of East Turkestan. So do you see they're, they're not referring to it as Xinjiang, they're claiming it's occupied by China, not part of China. They're separatists and this is the US government funding them. You, you can find the NED website admitting that they fund uh, World Uyghur Congress, Uyghur Human Rights Project, um, Campaign for Uyghurs, it's all the same handful of people in Washington, DC. And they just they just, they just all make their own groups and they cross pollinate. It seems like a very big movement, but actually it's very small and it's entirely dependent on US, uh, British and European money. What is the relationship between the Uyghurs and uh, let's say groups like Falun Gong? 
Well, I mean, in general, there is no connection, but the, the ones that the U.S. is cultivating and using, they, they, they literally like share office space in Washington, D.C. They get funded by the National Endowment for Democracy. They go to the same events together in Washington, elsewhere in the U.S., across Europe. Uh, there was a, a Uyghur tribunal that was put together by these U.S. government-funded organizations in the U.K., and... Uh, they all got together for that. And they had a very similar one for the Fulong Gong uh, talking about organ trafficking. It's the exact same template. These are made up accusations. There's no evidence whatsoever. Uh, the US is funding them. And the, the goal is very obvious. The US sees China as a peer or near peer competitor. They want to eliminate them as a competitor. So they're, they need a justification to uh, use aggression toward China, to put sanctions on China, to poison people around the world against China. Uh, so they use these type of lies. And I, I like to say that the, the Uyghur genocide lie is to China what weapons of mass destruction lies were to Iraq. It's the exact same process with the exact same end goal in mind. It's to create an enemy. Exactly. And to justify taking all of the, the measures needed to fight that enemy that would otherwise be entirely unjustifiable. Mm. And, and the American people would never buy into it either. What is the Chinese government's relationship with minority groups and religions like? Oh, well, okay. So, for example, there's a, a more recent article from Associated Press I think it's from uh, 2021, and it's titled Terror and Terrorism, Xinjiang Eases Its Grip, But Fears Remain. And uh, yeah, it's from 2021, and it was basically Associated Press journalists traveling around Xinjiang, and they, they saw how the whole region had been transformed. It used to be a, a very dangerous, violent place, and now it's bustling with activity, economic activity, uh, schools, new infrastructure. So the, the relationship between the Chinese government and these these ethnic groups is very close. They they want them to thrive. If they're all thriving, uh, if these groups are thriving together with those groups, then everybody is thriving. That's how Beijing sees it. And uh, what a lot of people don't understand is that China has a huge number of different ethnic groups. It's not just Han Chinese and and Uyghurs. There's there's actually many many ethnic groups, and uh, they're all part of China. If you look at the money. The, the paper money, the, the bills, they have all of the different languages of these different ethnic groups on this money, including Uyghur. Uh, so that's important to understand. And the, and the AP articles looking at, uh, we, we heard a lot of stories about how Uyghurs aren't allowed to go to mosques. The mosques are being turned into cafes or being knocked down. Uh, but they, they were actually in the mosques taking pictures of, of Uyghur Muslims worshiping. They even went to an institute that is training future imams. Uh, all funded by the Chinese government, and uh, people will say, "Well, that's because they have this, you know, the, the Chinese version, the Chinese Communist Party's version of of uh, Islam that they're imposing on them." No, because they also fund overseas trips for these future imams to travel to places like Egypt, where they could study Islam over there. So, so you could see how. AP by going there and all throughout the article, they're very dishonest. They try to spin absolutely everything. But if you objectively look at what they're saying, they're admitting that the Chinese government is, isn't trying to hurt Uyghurs, exterminate their culture or their religion. They're actually promoting it. They're protecting it. 
people come from around China to see it, uh, specifically to experience Uyghur culture, to see the mosques, to, to experience the difference in language and food, architecture. Uh, so I, I would say that it's, it's very close and uh, constructive. Um, I think by extension, not just the Muslim population, but also the Christian population, because you always hear that argument being made, that they're being persecuted. Yeah, you, you, you hear that, um, but which what Christians are we talking about? Um, it, it's exactly like the, the situation with Muslim, groups of Muslims in China, not just Uyghurs, there's the Hui, and there's some that are actually very close or had been close to Saudi Salafism, and they, they had a, a pretty decent relationship with the rest of China and the government. The problem is when, uh, say, when Saudi Arabia and the U.S. were radicalizing Uyghurs and they were killing people, they were hurting people, or they were creating social division, then the government's going to intervene because that's not, that's not what religion is supposed to be. It's supposed to be a, a personal thing, a community thing, a positive thing, and they're turning it into a political weapon. That's unacceptable. And a lot of these Christian groups that you see in China that claim that they're being persecuted, they're there to force their religion on, on other people. And I, I have to say, even my personal experience here in Thailand, there's many, many different groups of people, Buddhist, Muslim, Christian. The only people that ever have approached me are Christians trying to, uh, re, I don't know, recruit me, save me, whatever, whatever it is that they're trying to do, because that's that's their thing. But in China, that's that's not okay. It's not okay to try to impose your beliefs on somebody. It's a live and let live society, and uh, that's not acceptable. You mentioned the National Endowment for Democracy earlier. Brian, who are some of the big players or actors involved in, in this propaganda? So the, the National Endowment for Democracy uh, itself uh, this is a U.S. government organization. The board of directors are made up of people uh, like like Victoria Nuland, for example, who helped overthrow the government in Ukraine, just to give people an idea of who's actually running it. I, I mentioned the the groups, the, the so-called Uyghur Human Rights Groups, the Uyghur Human Rights Project, World Uyghur Congress, Campaign for Uyghurs. They used to have a whole list of them, but as people like me were pointing them out, they've erased it from their website. You have to look at archived versions. You can find other web pages on the NED that do still mention their names as NED, uh, receiving NED money. And uh, like I said, they're, they're based in Washington. They're based in Europe. They're not, they're not even in China. They're not in Xinjiang. And if you go to their websites, they're openly separatists. They, they have the East Turkestan flag all over their website. It's this uh, blue, blue background with a white crescent and, uh, believe there's a star and that is the East Turkestan flag. So they're separatists. And even if you go to the NED website right now, uh, the NED, they say Xinjiang slash East Turkestan. Nobody calls it East Turkestan except <laughs> separatists and, and more specifically terrorists who are killing people to carve it off of China. So that, that, I mean, that is the truth hidden in plain view. This is what they're doing. These are these are the people that are pushing this narrative. Uh, there's also Aspie. I mentioned them. This, uh, you know, supposed to be an Australian think tank, but it's it's basically run by U.S. interests, U.S. weapons manufacturers, the U.S. government. The State Department funds it. That's on that's on their website. Their funding is disclosed on their website. There's also uh, the victims of uh, communism, 
Memorial Foundation. This is funded by the US government based in Washington, DC. They have a senior fellow called Adrian Zenz. He writes all of these supposedly academic papers detailing the, the genocide, the cultural genocide, the coerced labor, whatever it is that they're trying to push. He writes these papers. And uh, if you go through them, and I have, unfortunately, I've, I've had to sit through and read all of these cover to cover, sometimes several times, there's no evidence at all. And even he himself will admit there is no evidence. So uh, just to give you an example, uh, there's one titled Coercive Labor in Xinjiang, Labor Transfer and the Mobilization of Ethnic Minorities to Pick Cotton. And this is this is part of the conclusion at the end. It says, overall, it is clear that labor transfers for cotton picking involve a very high risk of forced labor. So the, the paper is supposed to convince you that he has evidence of forced labor, but he concludes there's a high risk of it, which means he cannot prove it. He goes on and he says, some minorities may exhibit a degree of consent in relation to this process and they may benefit financially. However, in a system where the transition between securitization and poverty alleviation is seamless and where the threat of extra legal internment looms large, it is impossible to define where coercion ends and where local consent may begin. So he's admitting he has no way to tell, uh, but this paper, by the way, was used by the US State Department and the US government to impose sanctions on China, uh, which target companies that hire Uyghurs so that they no longer want to hire Uyghurs because they want to avoid sanctions. These Uyghurs who just got deprogrammed, de-radicalized, given a job, now they're unemployed. And why is the US doing this? Because they hope they fall back into poverty and back into extremism. This is the very cynical game the US is playing. Can it be argued, though, that where there's smoke, there's fire, is there perhaps a, a slightly more subtle or subversive attack on Uyghurs? By the Chinese government? Yes, or, or the Chinese people in general. No, no, I would, I would say this: uh, where, where there's smoke, there's fire. The, the smoke is these claims that China is cracking down on the Uyghurs, but the, the actual fire was the terrorism that was sponsored by the U.S. You know, the terrorism extends. I, I mentioned, uh, well, the BBC article mentioned that it was in Xinjiang, then it spread beyond Xinjiang, Kuomintang, even to Beijing. I'm based in Bangkok, Thailand in 2015. There was a bombing in downtown Bangkok. It was a shrine, a tourist attraction and a, and a religious and cultural site. They bombed it, killed 20 people. Uh, this is a place that I walked by many times. There were body parts hanging in the trees. They did this because the Thai government sent back Uyghur terror suspects to China. China requested them be extradited back. Thailand agreed. The US said, no, you're not sending them back to China. You're going to let them travel onward to Turkey. So the punishment for Thailand was, well, we're going to blow up this shrine and kill 20 people right in the heart of your city. Why were they going to Turkey? They were going to Turkey to go fight with ISIS and Al-Qaeda in Syria. They're going to cross the border and they were going to go join ISIS and Al-Qaeda. And this is even admitted by articles. So I, I mentioned Associated Press. They have another article, Uyghurs fighting in Syria, take aim at China. And they admit that there's at least 5,000 Uyghurs that went went to Syria to fight, just to give people an idea of how extensive the radicalization was. 5,000 extremists made the trip all the way to Syria to fight alongside Al-Qaeda and, and ISIS. That's, that's very significant. That's, that's the Western media admitting that. Uh, so it's, it's all 
it's all stemming from the terrorism problem. It was, it was not China cracking down on them. As a matter of fact, now that they've uh, solved the terrorist problem, they're, they're promoting Uyghur culture, language, tradition, religion, all of that always was pr protected uh, and promoted and celebrated. And it's, and, and they're doing so right now. So I, I think people that try to make that argument, they try to they try to skip past all of the terrorism. And that's why when you read the Western media today, you see almost no mention of this, this long list of terrorism that the BBC used to admit was taking place. Why do you think there is so much animosity from the West towards China? Well, that, that's easy. They're going to surpass the, the West. The West has enjoyed centuries of hegemony over the entire planet. They were uh, enjoying centuries, generations of impunity, the ability to do anything they want, anywhere they want. Now you see the reemergence of Russia, you see the rise of China. N naturally, they're going to want to stop that. They're going to want to impede that. They've openly said that. Uh, U.S. President Joe Biden, behind the podium in public, said he, during his term in office, he's not going to allow China to surpass the United States. So that's where it all comes from. They, they can't obviously compete with China in terms of manufacturing, infrastructure, um, th th all of these things that China is doing and that is part of its rise. They cannot do that. So what, what do they do? They do the things they are good at, subversion, uh, uh, military force, uh, both direct and indirect by proxy, uh, these proxy wars uh, around China that they're lighting on fire. And, and they're doing the exact same thing to Russia. It's about it's about maintaining hegemony and not allowing China to surpass the U.S. In terms of the alleged genocide, what have international human rights groups said? Well, it, it depends which uh, international human rights organizations sure. you're talking about, because uh, if you're talking about Human Rights Watch, well Amnesty yes. International, yeah, these <laughs> these are political tools used by the United States to to add credibility to their baseless claims, and they were right there during the invasion of Iraq, uh, helping prop up all of the U.S. lies. Then they did the same thing for Libya and Syria. They're still they're still doing it. They're doing it in Ukraine right now. And of course, uh, that's what they were doing in relation to China and Xinjiang specifically. Uh, so that that's that's what they do. But again, it's it all stems from this handful of organizations when they talk about, uh, oh, we have witness accounts. Witness accounts are, are a great place to start, but then you have to look for evidence when all of your witnesses are in Washington, D.C., part of organizations funded by the U.S. government. Uh, suspicions should begin to, to rise about what what the actual motive is here. Is it to actually address human rights or is it to use human rights as a smokescreen to advance U.S. foreign policy objectives? Amnesty International is really just a mouthpiece. Yeah, yes, and they've actually, uh, Amnesty USA has actually had people from the U.S. State Department uh, go from the State Department to Amnesty and and back. There's a, it's a, a revolving door where they go back and forth. It, it is basically an extension of the State Department. And again, they use it as uh, a smokescreen just to advance their, their foreign policy objectives uh, under the the illusion that they're trying to upload, uh, uphold human rights, which, which obviously they're not. Most, most of the time, as part of this process, they are the ones actually violating human rights, like, say, in Libya or Syria. What have other Muslim-majority countries stated 
about this supposed genocide because it's you know it's against Muslims. It's a very good question, and the the answer is very surprising. They all wholeheartedly support China in their efforts <laughs> to uproot extremism, <laughs> and uh, they've actually sent delegations to Xinjiang to see with their own eyes what is taking place there, and none of them have come out and said, "Oh, look at China! They're they're committing genocide against the Uyghurs." Nothing of the sort. Nothing of the sort because. Uh, that is the reality. And I, 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 I kind of feel that uh, Saudi Arabia's involvement, Turkey's involvement, again, you have to remember this was many years ago. A lot has changed since then. A, a lot of this was they themselves being coerced by the U.S. saying, you're going to help us with this, whether you like it or not. And if you don't help us with this, we'll destabilize you next. Uh, so it's this is how the U.S. does its foreign policy. It's, it's done through coercion the threat of violence, the threat of economic sanctions. They, they were doing it to China and they threatened to do it to anyone who, who wouldn't help them, aid and abet them. So hang on, what you're saying is that the majority of Muslim countries have, have said there's no genocide. Yes, yes. And people can look that up if they don't, they don't believe that. That is, <laughs> that is a fact. And they've, they've done it repeatedly and they sent multiple delegations. As a matter of fact, now that Xinjiang is not racked by horrific terrorism, anybody can go there, travel there as a tourist and look around and see. And so that was part of that, that AP article back in 2021 where they're, they're going around and they see and they're, they're saying, you know, you have Han and, and Uyghur children playing together in the streets. There's the mosques, there's the, the schools for the imams, there's all kinds of economic activity taking place. They also did something very interesting. They went to a museum that showcased the, the struggle that the region had against terrorism. And they had all of these weapons that had been confiscated from the terrorists in, in these showcases for you to see the reality of it. And they sat there, the AP uh, journalist who wrote this article sat there questioning it, while at the same time, all throughout the article, citing these so supposed witnesses in Washington, D.C., funded by the U.S. government with, with zero, with, you know, with, you know, they uncritically cited them while denying the, the physical evidence of the terrorism sitting right in front of their face. And by the way, uh, that those terrorist attacks listed by the BBC, there is security camera footage of all of those attacks. And uh, you can find it online. I would highly recommend not doing it if you if you're not if you have any, uh, you know, if you're squeamish, it is utterly horrific. They, these people are you can see they're clearly out of their minds. They are chopping up 100 percent innocent people in front of their family members in train stations, in restaurants, in markets. It's the it's. It looks unnatural because this isn't. This is entirely irrational violence. They were radicalized. It's like a, a cult member being indoctrinated and brainwashed. They they don't. They didn't know. They were not connected to reality in, in any way. And you can see that in their violence. Uh, it was a very real problem, a very real threat. And so that's what makes. And, and AP knows this, and the BBC knows this. And so for them to put things in quotation marks or to question whether it happened or not. It's just part of what the West does, this duplicity uh, in their, their coverage and the way they shape their narratives. And that violence was Western-backed. Oh, yeah. I mean, you have to think about it. Organized violence requires significant resources. So where were they getting their resources? Uh, there's the, 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 a terrorist organization, as a matter of fact. It wasn't just random people uh, popping up 
and, and doing this. It was the Eastern Turkestan Islamic Movement. And there's a very interesting story beh behind this uh, ETIM. If you go to the UN Security Council website, they've got a page titled Eastern Turkestan Islamic Movement. This is the Eastern Turkestan Islamic Movement, ETIM, is an organization which has used violence to further its aim of setting up an independent so-called East Turkestan within China. And they have that in quotation marks because they understand that Xinjiang is part of China. Uh, so this this was a, a real terrorist organization that was in 2005, and they, they they were talking about it had been on the list for several years already. At that point, the U.S. actually delisted it had been on the U.S. State Department list of foreign terrorist organizations. They delisted it in 2020. And if you go to articles like uh, The Guardian, U.S. removes shadowy group uh, from terror list blamed by China for attack. See, see what they're doing with the, the headline blamed by China. They were obviously behind the attacks. It says ETIM was removed from the list because for more than a decade, there had been no credible evidence that ETIM continues to exist. That was in 2020. Uh, if you go to uh, this article from NBC News, U.S. targets Chinese Uyghur militants as well as Taliban fighters in Afghanistan. That was 2018. They mentioned ETIM by name. So that's the State Department blatantly lying that they don't exist anymore. And then by 2021, Newsweek, which, which has a very close connection and relationship with the State Department, they actually interviewed the leader of ETIM, which they claim doesn't even exist anymore and hasn't for a decade. And if you read that article... They talk about this ETIM leader saying, oh, you know, China is the biggest threat to all of humanity. So uh, the U.S. left. We have to step in and, and check China's power. And it, it essentially sounds like they're teaming up with the U.S. And that's exactly why they delisted them, not because they don't exist or that they're not terrorists, but specifically because they do exist and they are terrorists. They will use them to fight China, just like they used uh, uh, the Mujahideen to fight the Soviets in the 1980s. ISIS and Al-Qaeda to fight Libya and Syria from 2011 onward. Uh, now they're using ETIM. They have been using ETIM to kill Chinese people in China, including Uyghur Muslims. You mentioned the UN. I'm no fan of the United Nations, but what is their official position? Well, it's, it's tricky, and I'm no fan of the UN either, because essentially it's a, supposed to be an international institution, but it reflects the, the vector sum of whoever has the most power and influence, which is still the US and, and the collective West. So the UN will have something like that on their website, the UN Security Council. That was actually under the UN Security Council. But then they will they will write reports that kind of humor this, this narrative that the US has put forward. Uh, very well, relatively recently, like the last year or two, they had the, the top human rights representative in the UN. The US was trying to pressure them not to go to China and visit China, visit Xinjiang and see for herself what was going on. They were telling her, no, don't do that. And then when she went there and she saw it, they were putting pressure on her to say, oh, yes, it's obviously genocide. And then eventually she quit because that's that's what the UN is. Uh, it can't do the right thing because the U.S. won't let them. They'll put pressure on them to, to get their way no matter what. Do the Uyghurs look substantially different to other Chinese, for example? Uh, is there a very big difference like between black and white people? Well, I mean, 
to to Western eyes, maybe not. But I think in China, Chinese people are acutely aware of the differences. Like I said, there's many different ethnic groups. They have different dialects. Some of them have entirely different languages. They have different physical features. And to to Chinese people living in China, they can see the difference. But uh, from their point of view, because they have a government that actually cares about the the collective well-being of the country. they're encouraged to get along with each other. They're encouraged to uh, respect, even celebrate each other's differences. Uh, the Uyghurs, obviously, they will have different physical characteristics. Um, I mean, they they appear to be Asian, but they have different features, more consistent with Central Asia than, say, Eastern uh, Asia, East Asia. Uh, obviously, different religion, different food, different again, different architecture, even. But this is the reason why it's such a popular tourist attraction for the rest of China. They don't, they don't see this difference as a problem. They see this difference as, as interesting, something they want to learn more about. I mean, there's millions of Chinese people that travel to Xinjiang now every year to, to visit it and experience uh, Uyghur culture and food and, and everything else. What is the general perception? Uh, here, you mean here in Asia? What is the perception? Mm. I mean, the mm. perception the perception is the U.S. is looking for a fight and they're making things up just like they did with Iraq, Libya, Syria, Afghanistan. Everywhere else the U.S. has gone with Russia, over Ukraine, everywhere, absolutely everywhere. Uh, so that's the impression most people have here in Asia, although the U.S. invests millions and millions of dollars every single year uh, on media. And, and the whole idea is to poison everyone, even here in the region, in Asia, against China. So you see, uh, say, the U.S.-backed opposition here in Thailand, their media concerns, they he- uh, heavily encourage anti-China narratives, including the so-called Uyghur genocide. Actually, there was a, a student group that invited one of these NED-funded organizations to come and talk about the Uyghur genocide. I mean, it, was, it wasn't like a Uyghur came to Thailand and talked about it. It was a, a, a white American woman who works in Washington for National Endowment for Democracy and now works for one of these groups, the NED funds. She actually came and, and did a lecture on, on Uyghur genocide. So there's, there's a push and pull going on between the truth, reality, stability here in Asia and the U.S.'s attempts to lie and poison everyone against each other, which is what they were trying to do in China. Uh, Xinjiang, they wanted to, to in- encourage extremism, to encourage division. This is what empire has done all throughout history, divide and conquer. That's what they were doing in China. And they do the same thing with uh, Tibet, Hong Kong, Taiwan. Everywhere they, they can find a fault line, they're going to stick the crowbar in there and try to pry it open as wide as possible. I guess this fits into the, the greater meta-narrative of the anti-China propaganda war that's currently, or that has been going on for decades now. Absolutely. Uh, you know, it all, it all fits together. The idea is to portray China as this horrific, totalitarian, a dystopian uh, nightmare regime that is crushing everyone, crushing religion, crushing culture, crushing family, when in actuality they're doing the exact opposite. I think you will find that uh, the Communist Party of China is heavily invested in promoting family, uh, religion, culture, history, while the West is destroying their own and actually trying to back groups elsewhere around the world to uh, attack and destroy their culture as well yeah but i think that word communist is is the trigger 
<laughs> yes, yes, it is. Uh, think about Adrian Zenz and his uh, Victims of Communism Memorial Foundation. I mean, it's it's a r- ridiculous Cold War era name for an organization. If you go go to China, I mean, what is what does communism even mean anyway? What does that mean? I mean, because China has state-owned enterprises. I mean, the the United States has state-owned enterprises. Uh, not not none of them are really good at what they do, but they have them in in China. They're much more functional and proficient, say, the the railway versus Amtrak. Amtrak is a state-owned enterprise. People don't understand that. So what do they mean by communism? If you go to China, people own property. They have their own businesses. They can work for themselves. They can work for someone else's company, or they can work for the state. They have the option to do that. Uh, The state invests heavily in its people instead of foreign wars. So they they have uh, healthcare that makes more sense, is cheaper and more accessible. Uh, they have uh, immense and impressive infrastructure. I mean, I've, I've been to China, I've seen it. I and I didn't know what to expect. But when you when you go to China, it, it's just like everywhere else you go. So, you know, I, I want these people to explain to me what it is that is so upsetting, and they have to do it without citing one of these ridiculous narratives like uh, Uyghur genocide. That's the thing that I have discovered a lot with with people. They are quick to make these comments, but they themselves haven't been there. Exactly. This is a huge problem because uh, just just think about everything else the U.S. uh, government has lied to the American people about. Absolutely everything. Why why do people imagine that China is the first thing they're telling the truth about? And a lot of people will say, well, okay, Brian, uh, that may be so. But just because the U.S. is saying it and they lie about everything else doesn't mean that this can't actually also be true. Maybe it is true. Well, that's why you have to do your own research. You can't just take on blind faith something a known verified liar is telling you, especially when the stakes are so high. They they lied about Iraq because they wanted to invade, destroy Iraq, overthrow the government, install their, their client regime into power. That was the motivation for China. The stakes are so much higher because this is a nation that is actually surpassing the U.S. That will surpass it. And once it does surpass it, it will be irreversible. The U.S. will have absolutely no ability to reverse this this transfer of power from the unipolar world to a multipolar world led by nations like China, Russia, BRICS, the rest of BRICS. Uh, so it, it, it really is. It's it's it's. They're they're so determined to do this. They know most Americans aren't going to do their. I mean, of course, they're not going to go to China and they're not going to do their research. But I'm pretty sure in the last discussion we had, I told people go on YouTube and just type in like 4K walk, 4K drive, something like that that. in China. Yeah, and it's incredible. And I mean, I've, you know, and then and then type it in for some place you've already been just to get an idea of you know, how close it is, it approximates reality. And you, you will be blown away because, like I said, a lot of countries around the world invest in their own people. And for the for the West, for the United States, they find this as such an alien concept. Like they, they just can't believe, they're like, in our country, no one's taking care of the roads, the infrastructure. We're so divided. They can't imagine another country exists in a different state of being, but it's true. I mean, I had that same perception when I joined the Marines before I went to Japan. That's what I thought the rest of the world was like. Mm. And I was, I was shocked. I was shocked into reality. And I, I just hope more people take the time, even if it's just on the Internet, 
because the internet is capable of doing that now. It's capable of bringing you to these places and at least giving you a small idea of what you're being lied to about. I saw an article maybe two weeks ago in Reuters. It was on Twitter. It was something about China uh, launching a rocket to go to the space station. But the image that they used was the Chinese flag and a surveillance camera. <laughs> yeah, like what? What does that have to do with the rocket? But that's but that's what they do. And uh, I've actually, if people go to my website and type in, uh, oh no, no, YouTube, the new Atlas, and not not the top search bar, but the search bar for my channel, and you type in uh, BBC um, tree color China, something like that. I, I caught the BBC literally photoshopping trees in China to make them look like they're they're all gray. So they had this this still image. <laughs> of this guy, this uh, British man who lives in China, has a Chinese family, and he does videos to try to introduce China to outsiders, specifically to debunk yeah. these narratives that we're talking about right now. And they were smearing him, it was a hit piece, and they actually photoshopped the image because the, behind him is, is, as you can see, it's a beautiful city with beautiful green trees on these rolling hills. And they actually went in there and they photoshopped. And if you have experience with Photoshop, you could see the telltale signs of a rushed, lazy, um, you know, they're, they're desaturating the color just over these trees and you can see where they missed. And uh, it's ridiculous. And the BBC saw saw people pointing that out and they went back and they changed the, the picture to the original colorful one. But that that was literally something they spent time and resources trying to do to mislead their audiences, to make China look like it is just some sort of dystopian hellhole where even color doesn't doesn't exist. I find it ridiculous that I have to give this disclaimer, but I think at this stage of the game, I'm going to give the disclaimer and say, no, I'm not being funded by any Chinese interests to have this conversation with you. And also, I'm not making the case that China is rainbows and unicorns. It's a country like every other. A absolutely. And uh, ne neither am I. I've been to China. I live in Asia. I've I've, ex I've experienced all of this myself, having the, the misconceptions, seeing for my, myself reality and, and waking up. And uh, I just want to share that with other people because knowing the truth is important. Think, think about the consequences of lies. Look at what lies did to Iraq or Libya or Syria. Look what lies are doing to Ukraine right now. Look at what lies are doing to the United States and Europe right now in the middle of this, this proxy war in, in Ukraine. Uh, so people people really they do they have to they have to go and check it out for themselves you're standing on the battleground of the information war and you're looking out at the horizon what is it that you see i see the west getting increasingly desperate there i think people paying attention close attention they can see the desperation sitting setting in uh, they're you know censoring Russian and Chinese media, that's something they never would have done in the past because they had so much control over the narrative. Uh, now they have less and less control. And so they're doing more and more desperate things. They know people are going to start asking questions. They're going to start looking at videos of, of I, don't, I wonder how long it will be because, you know, we're talking about these four. I don't want to get those people in trouble. Uh, but how long until they start, you know, start censoring anything coming out of China so they can maintain the illusion that it really is a dystopian hellhole? No, it's, it's not perfect. Nowhere here in Asia is perfect. There are a lot of problems. There are some very serious problems, but it is not the, the threat, the danger looming over the entire planet that the U.S. 
claims that it is. So this is going to get worse and worse. They're going to focus more and more on censoring people, trying to tell the truth. Uh, you know, they arrested Gonzalo Lira. He disappeared. The U.S. knows, knows that they know, they admit they know it. They don't care. They're doing nothing to get him out. Um, there were journalists being detained at airports in the U.K., uh, Kit Clarenberg. Uh, I've had my fair share of smear pieces written about me and, you know, suggesting that I be shut down. Uh, uh, Mike Jones of IRL Gray, he, his YouTube channel was just deleted. He's just a British expat in Russia talking about life in Russia. He also does volunteer work for innocent civilians along the front line uh, in Ukraine uh, among the, uh, in the middle of this proxy war. He's not helping soldiers. He's not involved militarily. They shut down his YouTube channel. So this is this is what I see on the horizon. We're talking about a dystopian authoritarian regime in China that we claim is so horrible, but it's actually the West doing these horrible things, shutting down free speech, freedom of expression, jailing people for telling the truth. What you're saying is it's the enemy within. Exactly. And isn't that always the, the greatest threat to all empires throughout history? They have this tremendous power, but it's not enough. And uh, because of their limitless greed, it's, it ends up imploding in and on itself. So I, I always say that the U.S. or an organization like NATO, they are actually their own worst enemies. And I, I think people, more and more people are seeing that more clearly mm. as events develop. All right, let's do some promo. How can I follow you? Uh, just go to YouTube, type in the new Atlas. It should be the, the first one that pops up. And in the video description of every video are all the other platforms that I'm on, Telegram, Twitter, Odyssey, Rumble, everything. And uh, I highly suggest people start following me on other platforms other than YouTube, because I think it's just, just a matter of time. I, <laughs> I want to thank you for having me on to have this uh, discussion. Uh, this is a, The last discussion was great. This was a great discussion. And this is a very important topic, even though I think it will be very controversial to, uh, you know, mm. you know, the, the alternative media world still, still has still has its own issues, I think. And uh, we just have to try to iron it out as best as possible. Brian Berlitek, thank you for joining me in the trenches. Thank you. If you enjoyed this podcast, please visit supportgerm.com.